0: In the church year, the first Sunday of Advent, which is today, is the beginning of a new year. And the church year begins today with Advent. And throughout the year, uh, in addition to the three readings which we have an Old Testament, a New Testament, a gospel lesson there's also a psalm assigned to each Sunday. And the psalm that's assigned for today, the first Sunday in Advent, is our text this morning, Psalm 122. Psalm 122. Psalm 122, then, is an Advent psalm. Now, we'll have to ask ourselves, why does the church see this as an Advent text? It doesn't seem obvious on a first reading. And so to answer that and to unpack the text, we're going to do two things here. First, I want to read the text in its original context as one of Israel's Psalms of Ascent or Songs of Ascent. You'll recall these Psalms, Psalms 120 through 134, known as the Psalms or Songs of Ascent, They were used by pilgrims heading to, uh, ascending to, because you go up to Jerusalem for the national feasts, the annual feasts. So we want to look at the Psalm as just one of the Psalms of Ascent in Israel's life. We'll call this the first reading. And then we'll reread the text in the light of Christ's advent, his coming or appearing which we begin to celebrate today. That's the second reading. And under both readings, we're going to reflect on three headings, arrival, worship, and peace. It will be simpler than it sounds, I hope. Um, So, first reading first, the arrival. So, Psalm 122, verse 1. The psalmist was glad he was overjoyed. He rejoiced when some of his, his compatriots said to him, let us go to the house of the Lord. That is, they're saying to him, let us make the pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem for the appointed feast. That's what let us go to the house of the Lord means. And in verse 2, the pilgrimage is complete. And he exclaims, our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. There's great affection here and love for Jerusalem, so much so that Jerusalem is personified and addressed directly. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. He talks to the city. He's overcome with joy. He's saying something like, I can't believe we are actually here. We're in Jerusalem. It's difficult, I think, for us moderns to understand the centrality of this city. Uh, you know, this place, the house of God is there, meaning the temple. It's, it's easy for us to underestimate these, the importance of this Israel. Everything revolves around this place. It's the center of the land. And it's the center of Israel's consciousness and of their hopes and of their aspirations. It's the city of David and it's the place where the Davidic king's throne is. And now, finally, the pilgrims, after their journey, they've arrived at the feast and they're rejoicing. Secondly, worship here, after they survey the city's compacted structure, guarded by walls. He says, This is the place where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. It's a picture of the unified nation gathered from the ends of the earth, right? Not, not, or at least the ends of the nation, the ends of the, the geographical extent of the land, but later, after the exile, it'd be from the ends of the earth. And they go up, they ascend to praise, to confess or to acknowledge the name of the Lord. It's the same reason why we're here. This name, as we've seen in the Psalms, the name of the Lord, it's a a multifaceted thing. It's it's like a diamond. It's it's the many-splendored glory of the being of God as He chooses to reveal a fraction of it to us. Notice it's the name of the Lord. That's Israel's covenant-making God. The name of the self-existent God of the Exodus, the great I Am. Or as God himself puts it, I am the Lord, that is my name. The tribes ascend For one purpose. To bless and to laud and to extol that inexhaustibly rich name. And they do this according to a statute. The end of verse 4 tells us according to a statute in the law. Meaning the law instructed Israel to assemble in Jerusalem for these annual feasts. And... Worship in this context includes not only praise, but instruction. It includes legal judgments rendered by the king. Notice this in the text. For there in Jerusalem, the text says, stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. So it's not just Jerusalem. It's not just that there's a temple here. It's that there's the place of public justice. Administered by the Davidic king in accordance with God's word. It's a picture of one Davidic king after another. Throne after throne after throne in the line of kingly succession. Administering justice. In one sense, the broad pattern of what we do here is in the text. Worship is praise and then kingly instruction and judgment by the word. So it was then. And third, the pilgrims pray for the peace of Jerusalem, beginning in verse 6. Peace is the the famous shalom. It's a a rich word. It means full, prosperous, abundant well-being. Not just the absence of hostilities. It's a thick word. It includes security for all who dwell in the city. The text says, may those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. And finally, he prays for the brethren, for family and friends. For their sake, he pronounces a blessing on the city. Peace be within you. The city causes him to pray for the people. The people cause him to pray for the city. So that's the first reading. It's a simple enough psalm. So as we turn to the second reading, we we here begin to see why the church placed this psalm at the front of Advent. And let me make a basic observation. It matters where we stand in history, in the history of, of God's redemptive action when we read a text. We can't simply read texts as if we were Jews living before the coming of Christ. We read texts in Christ and through Christ, for he tells his disciples that the texts speak of him. We read the Old Testament as a Christian book. He is in the text, which is in fact from the beginning about him, which is why we need a second reading Or better, we need a Christ-centered reading of the Bible. This is not always easy to do. But we're summoned to read the text in this fashion by Jesus himself. And so, when we look at it this way, the story turns. And it forces us to reconsider some things. And so... We are going to have to put our thinking caps on for just a couple minutes. I try and keep it simple. But but there's a there's a range of distortions and mistakes when it comes to Jerusalem that we want to try and avoid. So the second reading goes like this, I think. In Jesus we have an Israelite. He is the faithful Israelite. He is Israel. Isaiah 49, speaking of the Messiah, calls the Messiah, my servant Israel. He's a pilgrim. He is pilgrim Israel. And he has traversed the infinite distance between God and humanity. In the incarnation, in Advent, he has come to his own, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that pilgrim went up to Jerusalem to the house of God. And when he saw the city on his approach, he wept over it. Because Jerusalem, now alienated and apostate, is going to reject this pilgrim, not welcome him. He came to his own, John tells us, his own received him not. Nevertheless, to to the bitter end, with great solicitude and compassion, he yearned to gather Jerusalem to himself, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, he says. And yet, when his feet stood within the gates, notice how the psalm starts, our feet are standing within your gates. He would not be worshiping at the feast with the tribes. Rather, he would be tried and executed. He would celebrate the feast by being the Passover lamb. So the story takes a deep, dark, ironic, redemptive twist. His arrival stands in stark contrast with the arrival of the pilgrims in verses 1 and 2. And his rejection means the city's destruction. As he himself said, the days will come when not one stone here will be left standing. When Jesus arrived, he didn't celebrate the temple, but he cleansed it with a handmade whip. And he announced that the city and the temple would be judged and destroyed. A judgment which he himself administered once he was risen in the sending of the Roman armies on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And from 70 A.D. onward, Jerusalem and its temple lay in ruins. This means that when we read a text like this, we do not, indeed we cannot, think of ancient Jerusalem. But she was, Jesus said, the city upon which all the righteous blood shed from Abel to Zechariah would be avenged. Jesus makes it quite clear that he's establishing a new temple, a new city, a new Jerusalem. That, is the story of Advent. And thus, it's the story of the New Testament. Not a brand new Jerusalem in in that sense. It's the fulfillment or the continuation of the remnant of the old, but nevertheless, it is spoken of as new. There is a heavenly Jerusalem, and it's to that Jerusalem that you belong. The writer to the Hebrews, puts it this way. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And it's that city, not the earthly Jerusalem, it is that city whose name is inscribed on the brows of the overcomers in the book of Revelation. To him who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. For some reason, contemporary American Christians have an obsession with geopolitical earthly Israel that is not informed by the realities of what Jesus does in establishing a new temple and a new city. This Jerusalem, to which you have already come, is yet a city to which you have not yet fully come. The first advent of Christ established it, and the second advent will bring it forth in consummate glory and perfection. Advent is about getting your Jerusalem orientation right. And this Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God in Revelation 21. And brings the new creation. She is, Revelation 21 tells us, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The city is the bride, the church of Christ. And it's to this city that we've come. Our feet are standing in the gates of this city as pilgrims. Because his hands and his feet were nailed when he came as a pilgrim to the earthly, unbelieving city. That's his arrival. And we come to the Zion, to this heavenly Jerusalem to worship. We worship with all the tribes, all the people of God, which now includes every tribe and every tongue and every nation. This is made clear in our second lesson this morning from Isaiah 2. That Isaiah 2 text should be read along this, with the Psalm 122 text. their companion texts for the first Sunday in Advent. And that Isaiah text says in the latter days, meaning the days of our Lord's appearing, the nations will stream to Jerusalem. Which now, hopefully, we see is a picture of the church, the Jerusalem from above. And the nations stream now, in Advent time, in these last days, to this city. Notice something else. The city, the New Jerusalem, the church, is a temple city. Right? We are, you are the temple of God. God dwells in our midst. In Revelation 21, the the consummation of all things, God says, you know, I will dwell with them. They shall be my people. It's temple language. So notice this. Both the house of the Lord in Psalm 122, house of the Lord means temple, and the city of Jerusalem, also mentioned in Psalm 122, both the house and the city are fulfilled in the new Jerusalem, the church, for she's a temple city. This is a lot, I know. One more layer. This temple city that is the church, when she descends in Revelation 21, though she's a temple city, you are the place where God um, dwells, God inhabits the community of the saints. Nevertheless, there's no temple structure in the New Jerusalem. The whole city is a temple. Instead of a temple structure, Revelation tells us that the city has a throne in it. The throne of God and the Lamb, and that is the fulfillment of the thrones of David in verse 5 of our text. It's a temple city with a throne in the middle of it. And the whole Christmas story, believe it or not, is bound up with seeing this. All those familiar and charming and wonderful, you know, Christmas references that cluster around the, the celebration of Christmas having to do with the city of David, with Jesus as the son of David, with Mary as a from the Davidic line. They refer to the fact that he who has established a new temple city, a new Jerusalem, has established a new unending eternal Davidic throne. We are no more obsessed about earthly, geopolitical Israel than we are with the restoration of the Davidic monarchy in earthly, geopolitical Israel. In fact, there's something tragic about it because it's a form of Judaizing going back to what has passed away. The Davidic monarchy ended. The nation went into exile in the 6th century BC and the throne was never restored. Yet God had promised that he would seat a descendant of David on the throne forever. You remember this from Luke's gospel that the angel says to Mary, who's betrothed to Joseph from the house of David. He says to her of her child, he will be great. He will be called the son of God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. From that throne, in the midst of the new temple city, we and the nations are instructed in God's word. The throne is the throne of the risen and ascended Jesus. New city, new temple, new throne. That's how we read Psalm 122. We have great hope because the the Isaiah text tells us that as the nations stream in, they're going to receive instruction from the lips of the enthroned Christ. And what are they going to do? They're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Neither will they study war anymore. The appearance of the new city. The new temple with the throne in its midst, it means peace for the world. Advent is a cosmic celebration, it's international in scope. And it is that peace which we are praying for when we pray for the peace, the shalom of Jerusalem. We're praying for the defense. And the unity and the well-being and the international expansion of the church, the temple city of God, the new Jerusalem to which we have come and for which we wait. That's what we do when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. To simply pick the text up, read it as if a a Jew in the 4th century BC would read it, and then ask for money from people as many television preachers do. is to act as if the new covenant has never happened. I mean, there may be reasons, geopolitical reasons or even historical reasons to pray for the peace of earthly Jerusalem. We should pray for the peace of all nations. I'm not saying that, but they're not the theological reasons that are often proffered. So we are praying for the peace of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is the new city temple with the new throne in it. In the words of the shorter catechism, we're praying for the kingdom of Satan to be destroyed and the kingdom of grace to be advanced and the kingdom of glory to be hastened. Because her peace, the peace of Jerusalem, is ultimately the peace of the restored cosmos. Right, this peace is the peace of his reconciling appearance, and it's even now being poured out on the world. And so Advent is about getting Jerusalem right. And thus it means getting the house of the Lord right and getting the Davidic throne right. It's about being reoriented toward this new temple city with an everlasting throne in its midst. It's a lot of material, I know. And, but getting it right is crucial because it liberates us from provincial praying for an earthly physical city or from aspirations about rebuilt temples and restored Davidic monarchies. What it does is it lifts up our vision To this unmeasurable scope of what God was and is doing through Mary's son or let me put this another way this is broader than the standard pray for the peace of Jerusalem line that you might have heard from other preachers because it includes since all the nations are going to stream into the new Jerusalem since the peace that goes forth from the gospel is going to affect the whole cosmos it includes Israel It includes all nations. Why would I restrict myself to praying for one city in one geopolitical nation when Christ has come to reconcile all the nations? Why would I pray for the peace of one city when the reconciling gospel of the cross is about peace in the cosmic order of things? The international peace of all nations. I always tell people there is nothing more lethal than Christmas. It's just that you have it crusted over with layers and layers and layers of sentimentality. This baby is lethal. He's going sh- to shatter death. He's going to strip the dark powers. He's going to heal the nations. He's going to restore the cosmos. He's building a new temple, a new city, a new people. In the midst of it, his everlasting Davidic throne. So surely the church has shown great wisdom in placing this psalm at the front end of the Advent season. So use the season, I exhort you, to find your security and your peace and your prosperity within her walls. Peace to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her Davidic king. Amen. Amen.